This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. The Hebrew Bible, the Jewish Bible, uh, says a number of different things about the possibility, perhaps, of an afterlife. And it's a little complex to explain in a sentence or two. So there, there, there was originally this idea of the Sha'ol, the idea of the underworld, mm-hmm. uh, which was an idea actually was common in the ancient Near East. Although the way the ancient Near Eastern people thought about it was uh, meaning the Babylonians or the Egyptians, Sumerians was not exactly in any way how the uh, was thought about in the Hebrew Bible because they believed in gods, gods above in the regular life and gods in the underworld. And, mm. and Jews or the Israelites didn't believe that. It wasn't part of their of their Bible. So is it fair to say that, um, that to put it in, in today's terms, the Hebrew Bible actually has a, a quite striking countercultural view of what's happening in the underworld and the heavenly realm in some, in some ways, at least when it comes to death, especially like I think most people know about Egypt and you're supposed to pass through some kind of passage where your heart is weighed against the feather of Ma'at. Uh, but that's the... That's is that the body or the soul that's being um, that's passing through? I guess. I, I mean, being, not being Egyptian myself, although I read some of their writings, I'm not 100 sure. But I because they're they're the Mesopotamians and the Egyptians believed that the life in the underworld after one dies is kind of like a faint imitation. Of the life in this world is that you have a uh, you, you do have food and drink, and the food and drink are actually often provided by the descendants who are the live descendants mm. who put it on in their tombs. Um, and there's also in Egypt there was uh, uh, magical spells and rituals that were done uh, be- before to hopefully conduct a, uh, a comfortable physical and spiritual existence after death. But uh, uh, none of this, the, the Hebrew Bible is primarily absent when it comes to any kind of description mm-hmm. of what goes on. And uh, there's, there's no real details what happens after death. The only hint maybe in the entire uh, about of some kind of existence after death uh, is in this uh, famous story in First uh, Samuel twenty-eight, mm. when uh, Saul engages a necromancer in Ain Dor to raise Samuel from the realm of the dead. Uh, right, and, uh, and I noticed you said "raise" there, and I think you're following the language of that story. Uh, yes, <laughs> where Samuel says, "Why did you bring me up?" Right. Exactly. Which yes. for most Christians, when we read that story with them, they're like, wait, bring him up 
from <laughs> from where? <laughs> like, well, let's talk about this, right? So, yeah, what do you, how do you read that passage? Because it is a fairly cryptic passage on what's going on there. Yeah, well, it's uh, well, you know, you have also. I mean, before we get uh, back to that, there's um, Abraham and and Jacob, the patriarchs, mm. right? When when they die, it said that they were gathered to right, right. gathered to his people. Whoa, what does that mean? Abraham yeah. was gathered to his people. It's not like he had any people, you know, <laughs> to be gathered to. <laughs> it's right. I mean, so it suggests uh, it probably suggests in terms of both of them they they were in some way reunited with their families. Okay, but there, mm. but that's a guess. There's there's no real uh, thing, and, and you have these. You know, you have state, some statements in in uh, Psalms, uh, Psalm six five, I think, says uh, in Shaol, who will give you thanks? There's no remembrance of right, you. right. And Psalm one fifteen or seventeen says, the dead do not praise the Lord, nor those who go down in silence, meaning to the grave. You know, so. Uh, well, even there, sil- silence into the grave is that is that using the term Sheol as well. No, it's just uh, the silence. It's just your day oh, into the not, silence. Okay? Yeah, okay. We'll go down into the silence. But they mean this, uh, apparently the silence of the grave. Yeah, yeah so, so I think that's an important point, though, as well, that um, that when we say Sha'ol and we say, well, what is Sha'ol? And we're like, well, it has it gets used quite a bit in with some elasticity. It gets used in different circumstances. Um, but is yes, there a physical know. thing that yeah. Sha'ol is a metaphor of? Or the, that meta, it becomes a metaphor from we we don't we the the word shaol although it's common in the Hebrew Bible does not appear in any other ancient Semitic language. So oh, we anxious, just, interesting. interesting! It doesn't. Yeah, we so we really don't know. You have to kind of like draw these little things here. So on the assumption that the you get back to the uh, what happens to uh, in First Samuel twenty eight uh, when. The, when the female uh, necromancer, uh, some people call her a witch, but when she brings up the dead Samuel, okay, she just it, she describes it as like a divine figure, and then right. and then she says he's an, uh, the appearance of an old man covered with a robe, hmm. and, and and Saul knows it's Samuel, who who then says to Saul, "Why have you disturbed me?" Right. <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> There's maybe that's this uh, you know sense of maybe he's been in eternal rest, right? You know, and, right. right. So that's the that's the only hint we have. But then Samuel goes into I mean what's what's called Samuel there, whatever you want to right. say. The, the word spirit is not used. The word right. So uh, whatever that voice says. Is he gives a speech of several verses explaining that God is fulfilling Samuel's prophecy given when he was alive mm-hmm. uh, to Saul. And it, it, there's no difference. I mean, if you read that, those verses, there's just no difference between what Samuel said when he was alive and what he's saying when he's dead. Mm-hmm. Except that at the end, he says to Saul, you and your sons will be with me tomorrow. Right. <laughs> which they Which they were. Which they were right. Yeah. It's like because, and that's the interesting thing about why, why this kind of thing was forbidden in Israel. Because why did the divination of this type, or this these necromancers exist elsewhere, be in ancient Near East? Because it was thought the gods 
that the gods could be somewhat manipulated hmm. by by magic or by divination. And it was in some way, if you could tap the phone line of the gods, right, you knew right. what the gods' plans were, then you could circumvent them. And the whole idea of it being forbidden, this forbidden in, in Israel is that you're, if you have it in Israel, you're treating God as if he was a pagan deity. And he's not. He, you cannot circumvent God's plans. Does it make a difference? What you, and therefore, if you behave this way, you're behaving as a pagan. Yeah. And, I, I think that's an, a really important point because I think a lot of people will read that passage and try to squeeze squeeze it for the blood of the metaphysics of the afterlife. Um, and it, it really likes uh, like all of the Hebrew Bible, and I would say all of the New Testament as well, is just really uninterested in describing what is going on in this realm called Sheol. Uh, you just get little hints all over the place. Right. You have to answer what's not going on. Yeah, exactly. Ecclesiastes is a verse that says, there's no function nor thinking nor knowledge nor wisdom in Sheol to yeah. which you are going. Right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, and I think for uh, Christians are going to struggle because they're going to think of, well, when you die, you go to heaven or hell. And which is a, you know, it's one way of looking at the text. It's not even necessarily the majority way of looking at the text amongst biblical scholars, but um so to hear even this is to say like, well, but is it a good or a bad place? And we might say, well, it's just a place, you know, <laughs> like, is my house a good place or a bad place? Yeah, What's well, my house? I, I, you know, I, it's, it's, it's where I'm at. It's where I live, you know? Yeah, well, it's, it's right. It's where uh, we, we very rarely, you know, it's interesting that the, it was common in among ancient Eastern peoples to bury their ancestors in the house. Oh yeah. Yeah. Under the floor. Right. <laughs> in the, yeah. And in the living space. Only, Right, and I think you only have one example of that uh, of of someone being buried in his house. I think uh, in in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, and uh, it's so they were buried outside, and there was no you know there were there was no cult of the dead. There were no rituals that were done, or or the rituals or anybody who did such things was doing pagan rituals. Yeah, yeah. I I think this is. I mean, for me, like methodologically thinking about these issues, this is the most important topic. They're surrounded by cultures that talk endlessly about what happens in and after death and then has entire ritual systems built up around what happens after death. Um, and so I, I do wonder if the silence here is a critique and also guidance. Like this isn't what this isn't where your focus should be in some ways. Yes, there is a and it's interesting that there is a metaphor which and, and apparently not just a metaphor, but sometimes it it's, it's means something real, actual, of the idea of God raising up from the dead. So, right there's right. so in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter thirty-two, God is quoted as saying, "There is no God with me." It's an important point. I kill and I make alive. Hmm. I have wounded and I heal. So uh, the idea of how I have wounded and I heal means I've wounded, and then that same person I can heal, or I heal, and then uh, I kill and I make a life, meaning that I can I can kill somebody and then bring them back to life. Yeah, and and this is this is actually you almost have one of the very similar verse in Hannah's yeah, prayer. Yeah, Hannah, right, exactly. Right. She says, the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. 
Yeah, and grave there is Sheol, right? So, um, yes, it's Sheol, right? Yeah. that's right. It brings down to Sheol and brings up. So, yeah, I think right. uh, so, I think John Levinson was the first person I heard that. That's the first person I heard uh, who pointed this out to me that um, that idea of resurrection is right there in the poetry of the Torah, and then gets repeated by Hannah. Uh, yes, inter- interestingly, that exact same poem by Hannah or that song of Hannah gets repeated by Mary in the New Testament in the Gospel of Luke. She almost line for line goes through and rehearses uh, that song of Hannah. Yeah, interesting. Um, and well, the, well, you know the the thing here about Hannah's prayer is that it expresses the Israelite view that only God is responsible for life and death, and it rejects mm. all the ancient Near Eastern polytheistic notions of the underworld. Right? You know that God's control over life and death is consistent with His omnipotence. Just as he controls the world, he can, according to his will, he causes death and revives life. So, yeah, yeah. So I that I mean, in many ways, we could go on and on about what the Hebrew Bible doesn't say about the afterlife, and and kind of where it does direct our attention. Which I think that's an important point that you're making as well. Is like it's not it's not just what it doesn't say; it's where it is telling us to think about things. Um, in Hellenistic yeah, Judaism, things. Oh, oh yeah, sorry. And I, I want to go to Hellenistic Judaism or what we call second you know, late second temple Judaism, um, things shift significantly. Yes. Yes. Uh, you do have, uh, an apparent shift going on. Uh, and, uh, that's, uh, the first, actually the only unequivocal voice concerning resurrection comes from one of the latest passages in the Hebrew Bible. Mm. The, uh, and, and that's, that's probably from the time of the Seleucid persecutions of the Jews in Israel, which is approximately 170 BCE, which is from the last chapter of Daniel, Hmm. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to reproaches and everlasting abhorrence. And uh, at least that's the best translation I can come up with. But even that leaves a little bit of something uh, that's that that's not clear and that is uh, does this relate only to the righteous and the wicked and hmm. or, or, you know how about all, all the rest of us right so it's <laughs> uh, but you're right that in the, the new and uh, the um, also at this time you have um, uh, you have a verse in the, at the end of Ecclesiastes hmm. uh, which yeah. uh, uh chapter 12 where um, it's which says and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit the Hebrew word ruach right which is like the spirit returns unto God who gave it which is a very interesting text in terms of the immortality of the soul Hmm. which really uh, you don't have um, before then Uh, I mean there might be some kind of hints in the uh, Hebrew Bible to it, but uh, there's nothing definite. And then, so, so then you have this uh, verse I just mentioned in Ecclesiastes, which is probably also is from the Hellenistic period, probably about the third century. The Hellenists came in at the end of the fourth century and they divided the Levant between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. And the uh, land of Israel was uh, somewhat back and forth mm-hmm. between the two until the Seleucids Finally, uh, grasped it uh, strongly and and, uh, and 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 took over and 
uh, you end up with the period of persecution um, of the Seleucids of the uh, of the, the the Jews by this time. Right. Uh, Jew, of course, being a uh, a word that comes from, despite its spelling, comes from Judah. So you had right. the Judahites who survived uh, in the Hebrew Bible after the Israelites were. The North Israelites were taken captive by the Assyrians, and then um, by the time of the Hellenists, they're now called uh, Jews or 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 you die. You know, so right. it's uh, which still returns and retains the name Judah, which will become uh, eventually Jews. Yeah, and and it's a complicated story, but Jew is it, it's just as much regional as it is ethnic and includes different tribes. And um, there's a lot going on with that term. There's a recent Oxford book that came out by uh, Jason Staples, um, which is an interesting history of how this term is being used in this period. But we know who, we, we at least know who is being pointed to uh, by the Seleucids, this, these Greek and the Ptolemies. So these are kind of Greek rulers in, in regions to the north and the south of Israel. Um, and I guess the question is, okay, so, you know, it's hard to make a case that there's something called a soul in the Hebrew Bible. And, and even when we say things like nefesh, it's turning to, you know, it's, it's pointing to physical aspects of the body. And even if we want to say, yeah, maybe there's something like that being hinted at in ruach, which is wind or spirit, you know, and these analogies, I guess the question would be, the Hebrew Bible is so hesitant to like really play up the metaphysics of soul and afterlife. Um, I guess, why do you think Jews seem to pick up a lot of Greek ideas and then start, uh, start interpreting their own views through what we consider classical Greek categories of ontology, the nature of well, being itself? Yes. Well, I, I think that a, a major unspoken issue here is the idea of theodicy, the idea of mm. uh, a God's justice, despite what is going on in the world. Right? Mm. We, uh, and I think that the, the discussion of the soul appeals to Jews of that period who are going through a very rough time. After all, uh, when we look around the world, we see things which just are not fair. And I can say life is not fair, but it's, right. if, you, if you look at it and you see that people who are, we know to be really good, fine, wonderful people, caring about others, doing things on others, some of these people have great tragedies that happen to them in their lives. Mm. And, and some of them have you know, a, a great amount of suffering uh, which leads to their death, and uh, so we—it's but we who believe in a God who is good and who who is just say, well, this can't be part of God's justice. So there's hmm. something greater here, and there's there's something which which is extremely appeal, appealing to uh, to us, and that is that. If in this life, in this physical life, there is justice that is missing, then that will be fulfilled in a future life to which we, our souls, go back to and, or 
right? Because our souls come from God. It's like there's this godliness part of us inside of us, which is in a way returned or returns to God after uh, the physical death. Mm. And I think that that becomes a very uh, attractive idea in the Hellenistic period. And, and there's also, yeah. the, for the first time you hear in this period, the classical Hebrew term for the afterlife, or I should say the classical Jewish term, which is olam haba, the world mm -hmm. to come. And you actually have that in the Book of Enoch, which is uh, from around uh, 160 to or something, you know, in the um, second century BCE, yeah. where it, it says, uh, he, meaning God, proclaims unto you peace in the name of the world to come. Uh, so, and, and then, oh, then you have texts which are, which, which discuss this. You have the, the wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, which is apparently between, written somewhere between 50 BCE and uh, be 50 of the, the common era or the Christian era. But the souls of the righteous are in the hand of God and no torment will ever touch them. Uh, in the eyes of the foolish, they seem to have died and their departure was thought to be an affliction, but they are at peace. For though in the sight of men they were punished, their hope is full of immortality. Hmm. And another verse there says, but the righteous live forever and the reward is with the Lord. The Most High takes care of them. So I think a lot of Christians are not aware of, some of them might be, but uh, not aware of all of these Jewish texts that are written just prior, you know, a century and a half, two centuries prior to the time of Jesus, and, and then after as well. Uh, they, know, they might know about the Talmud and the Mishnah that's uh, a little bit further down the line. Uh, but these are texts that are actually trying to integrate some of these ideas that come across from the Greeks. Uh, and, and they, you know, I think of Wisdom of Solomon or Ben Sira as, like books that feel very much like Hebrew biblical text. Um, but then they have these little bits in them. They're like, oh, no, that's Greek. That's definitely a Greek idea being worked in there. Is there a movement in, within Judaism to kind of disentangle Greek thought from, uh, from what they consider, you know, the, the, the biblical thinking of the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible? Yeah, yes, but, but essentially you mentioned Ben Sirah. And Ben Sira actually has a pretty traditional idea of the um, of, of going down to the grave from uh, hmm. you know, from the Hebrew Bible. But you have, you know, somebody like uh, the the great Hellenistic Jewish philosopher Philo Judaeus, right? Who who, who describes uh, how the souls of the righteous return after death to their native home in heaven, hmm. uh, or even in the case of rare individuals like the patriarchs. To the intelligible world of the ideas, so you you can see like a little Aristotelian stuff in there. Yeah, um, doesn't get much more Hellenistic it, than that. <laughs> yeah, and but you do have also um, resurrection being uh, uh, spoken of in a certain. Uh, you have in the Second Maccabees, uh, which is written about the middle of the second century BCE. Um, where he speaks of resurrection for those who are faithful to God and, and his commandments. There's a famous story there of the woman and her seven sons 
who are all tortured to death because they will not accept this elusive king Antiochus mm. as God. Mm-hmm. And as a fourth son of the woman is being tortured to death, he says to the king, I will wake to an eternal life and you will never wake. Mm. Yeah. So that's... And, and for for Christians, these texts we're referring to, most of which appear in what uh, what we would call uh, in the Protestant tradition the Apocrypha, right? Those texts in between the yes. Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and the New the Testament. Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha, yeah, right. So, yeah, and there's yeah. many more texts outside of the Apocrypha, uh, Jewish texts from this period as well and beyond, of course. Okay, uh, so I think we have a good picture of how things changed. Um, you know, if we were to jump ahead in time to maybe medieval period, and certainly when we want to get to today, like where do Jews generally fall on these issues? And I know the medieval period, especially like Maimonides, is going to have a heavy influence on where Jews fall today well, on the topic. Yeah, well, the um, well, look, uh, there's it's important to emphasize that we are talking here about a very small portion of even the texts that deal with these issues. Right? Mm-hmm. The vast majority of, of Jewish texts from the Hebrew Bible on through the Talmud into the medieval period, into the modern period, are almost totally focused on how to act in this world. It's this world that we know about. It's with the whatever is going to happen in the future or in our particular futures uh, after we die, that's in the, we, the feeling is that's in the hand of God. Yes, there becomes a, a, a major, uh, shall we say, one of the, Maimonides has one of the 13 principles of Jewish faith. He has the resurrection of the dead. Hmm. Yes, that's there. And in fact, it's there also in liturgy from the Talmud on. The Talmud is from uh, approximately uh, uh, material collected from around the end of the second century of the, of the Christian era uh, through the uh, seventh century, let's say. Uh, and then you go on with the people who are commenting on that, etc. like Maimonides comments on it uh, very significantly. Um, so uh, the, it, it, in the liturgy, in the liturgy today, the traditional Jew, the first thing the traditional Jew says in the morning is, I acknowledge, O sovereign all life, of all life and existence, that you have in your compassion restored to me my soul. Because it's the feeling is that when you go to sleep at night, much of your soul, if not all of it, is take it away and is restored to you hmm. in time for you to wake up in the morning. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So there's like a direct line of influence there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not a, uh, a right. So you, in traditional, yes, these ideas appear in traditional Judaism right on through today. So you're talking about orthodoxy and even conservative Judaism. Um, if you're talking about the, the two of the three major movements, Reform has has treated this a little differently. Um, I should just explain briefly. Orthodoxy believes that the uh, the entire um, uh, the, well, the Torah comes directly from God, and the rest of the uh, Jewish Bible uh, was uh, inspired by God. However, you want to understand that, mm-hmm. and the even the, the 
the Talmud was inspired by God. But um, conservative Judaism believes that it's more of a, a, a God-man dialogue, these texts. And when you get to, uh, and therefore the, the commandments are, are, are something which is, is more situated in a historical fashion. And even though conservative accepts a lot of the commandments, there's also the, they've made some changes. Um, and then when you get to reform Judaism, reform Judaism has the idea of uh, that really all of these, that God exists, but that everything that is said to be a commandment is really up to personal autonomy, mm-hmm. meaning people can decide for themselves what they're going to do. Now, therefore, what they end up is, in terms of belief, is that they have very different beliefs, and they reject the idea of resurrection, but, and you'll find this interesting, they do accept the idea of the immortality of the soul. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> so Again, you can see it probably some yeah. kind of direct line of, um, of influence there through enlightenment thinking yeah. as well. Yeah. But I have to tell you that I, I, there's there's a lot of disagreement about about when exactly, even in traditional Judaism, when does the soul completely abandon the body uh, after death and rises to heaven? So, is it immediately upon death? Does it linger for the week of mourning? There's a week uh, in Jewish tradition of mourning. And then there's a whole, there's a year which follows that, or which goes up to actually to the end of eleven months, which is um, which is a morning, but not as intense as the first week or thirty days. And does it still linger during the year of mourning the soul? I don't know, but I I can tell you something personal. I was alone with my grandfather of blessed memory in the hospital room when he died. And as I held his lifeless body in my arms, I had the eeriest sensation that he was looking down at me from above. Mm. I'm getting chills just thinking about it. <laughs> Near the ceiling of the hospital room, he was that I was here. I am looking at his body, and I feel that he's looking down at me from above. Now, I, I can't say. You know what? I, to me, it, it's. It, it felt like it was his soul looking down at me. It was, but it was like him, right? And I, so, you know, I can't say for others how they should feel or, or, or what they should believe. But for me, it was an affirmation of the of the belief that uh, there is an immortal soul. Hmm. I th- I think it's interesting that. The New Testament authors, most of whom it's widely believed were Jewish, uh, many times are who are writing to a mainly Jewish audience with some Gentile overshot, um, who are talking about the world to come, the new heavens and new earth, the re- reunification of the heavens and the earth, uh, the kind of Isaiah's view of the new heavens, new earth, um, that they almost never with maybe a handful of exceptions, but almost never refer to any of this um, Hellenistic Jewish literature. They never quote it. They never cite it. They never rely on it for a point that they're making. 
And so there is this question as to whether uh, how much you know this line of thinking has really influenced the New Testament authors in that first century uh, after Jesus, um, and how different you know maybe this is one one of another ways in which there's been a parting of the ways uh, between these two sibling religions that emerge from first century Judaism. Um, but it is striking to me that they don't they don't engage this literature at all. They only go back to the Torah. They only go back to, you know, Zephaniah or Zechariah and Isaiah and Ezekiel, et cetera. It's, it is interesting. It's, but you know, this is, um, uh, if you look at early Christianity as a Jewish sect, right. Which I think it was. Let's be honest. It was. Yes. <laughs> Yes, I agree. I mean, it's one of the reasons that I am a uh, religious Jew, why I read the New Testament. I was interested in reading about, you know, this, you know, with the words of this particular sect. Um, and uh, but if you look at the at the various, I mean, look, in Judaism, I say rabbinic Judaism takes a lot from uh, this, the Pharisees who came before mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. In terms of uh, in terms of these ideas, idea of uh, resurrection. In fact, one of these things is one of the uh, issues about the soul and resurrection is a major difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Right, mm-hmm. the Sadducees were, were didn't uh, believe in this, and uh, it was uh, it was a big difference of uh, of opinion between them. Uh, but again, if you, you know, look at the Talmud, then you see. All these different opinions of uh, of, of different thing, of of different viewpoints about this. There's a uh, right. There, uh, one of the notions we haven't talked about is the idea of hell, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the, there's you you have a uh, a uh, the idea that the wicked are punished right. by being denied the spiritual a- afterlife, which the uh, the righteous will come with. And so so what happens to the wicked, right? So in there's hell is called in in communic times um, um, and, and up until modern times really uh, Gehenna going Gehenna right. which means the valley of the it comes from the valley of the son of Hinnom which is in the Bible in which uh, it's on the outskirts of Jew, of ancient Jerusalem it's still a beautiful little it's, valley today, it's grass today? covered right. yeah yes in which in biblical times children were sacrificed. To uh, the to idols, and so this became the the Jewish understanding. Of, I mean, this was like the worst possible thing that could happen, and so this was uh, this becomes the name for for hell. But this notion is never given any kind of official status. Mm-hmm. It's it's also not even central. Uh, there's a statement that says there will be no uh, Gehenna in in the, the world to come. And then there's, uh, then according to another Talmudic text, the souls in Gehenna, the above the wicked, are punished for up to 12 months. And then they continue on to the Garden of Eden, which is another term for here used for the, uh, the, the, the ideal world to come. And right. yet another text those, says that the, those who remain wicked are, are annihilated. Hmm. And by the way, if, there's also... Uh, a, a significant statement about the Gentiles, um, which is in the Talmud, which says the righteous of all nations have a share in the world to come. Hmm. 
So, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it, it, and this would be a whole nother episode of that hell's probably not a word that translates anything in the New Testament, uh, because again, it's Gehenna that's being uh, used there um, in the New Testament by uh, for the same reason. Uh, I think the big difference is though, Gehenna and Judgment of the Wicked is actually put on an absolute timeline in the New Testament, uh, where it sounds like it's left more ambiguous um, in rabbinic Judaism. So, well, in, in the, but it becomes in terms of judgment. There's an individual judgment which occurs to the each individual at the after the end of their lives. But you know we're coming up on uh, on Rosh Hashanah, right? The mm. beginning of the, the Jewish year, right? With Yom Kippur file, uh, film Kippur, the Day of Atonement following quickly after it, and that is there's this period that we're in right now which is a period where Jews should be doing repentance because mm-hmm. every year God judges in the individuals who shall live and who shall die, who shall be sick, who shall be well, etc. Okay. And that's, and so we, and we in this judgment, it's, um, it's said that on the judgment is written down on it is is the common tradition on Rosh Hashanah, but it's not sealed till not ten days later on Yom Kippur, okay, the Day of Atonement, which means you have these ten days <laughs> that you get it straight. You know, you really need to do what is right, and the repentance is not something which just means that you you pray to God and ask forgiveness and uh, and you fast on Yom Kippur. It's it's before that, you mm. be according to the the Talmud. Right before that, you must ask forgiveness from anybody who you have offended, and if you have to uh, pay compensation, then you have to do it before Yom Kippur. Because on Yom Kippur already, if you haven't done it then your prayers on Yom Kippur will not be accepted by God. Hmm. Okay, well, Rabbi Dr. Jerry Unterman, who is one of our <laughs> senior fellows at the Center for Hebraic Thought, thank you so much for helping us to understand a very complex topic over, I don't know, a couple of millennia of literature and thinking. Uh, thank you for your time and your wisdom. Uh, th- well, th- thank you so much. I'm honored that you asked me. And I wish you and all your listeners uh, that the uh, they have a uh, not just a wonderful day, but a wonderful life and a life in which uh, we all exhibit the best of ourselves in our dealings with other people. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.